from the bridge at the Launchpad Studios in Huntington, New York. It's Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Cardboard Memories, Clearview, Long Island, the law firm of Decalator, Cohen, and DePrisco, the Phoenix Tube Company, Pims Incorporated, fueling brand performance for 30 years, Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, and Soho Table Hockey. Here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Now, joining us now is a man who enjoyed an 11-year Major League Baseball career. He played for the New York Yankees, Anaheim Angels, Texas Rangers, Boston Red Sox, San Diego Padres, and Los Angeles Dodgers. His playing days were highlighted by a pair of memorable postseason home runs he hit with the Yankees in 1995 and 1996 in comeback wins. His most iconic of the two occurred in Game 4 of the 1996 World Series against the Atlanta Braves at Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. In the series, the Yankees trailed the Braves two games to one, and in Game 4, the Yankees trailed 6-0 after five innings. The Yankees rallied for three runs in the sixth, setting the stage for his at-bat in the eighth inning. Facing Atlanta closer Mark Wallers with one out, two runners on, he had a three-run homer to left field to tie the game and cap the improbable Yankees comeback. It is a pleasure to welcome our good friend, the King, Jim Laritz, back to Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Jimmy. Hey, what's happening, Mark? How you doing tonight? Uh, we're doing pretty good. Hopefully, you're doing a little better with your car trouble. We appreciate your, your yeah. fitness in here. Um, you know what? I went, uh, I went to electric, and I'm trying to figure out outside uh, the mall how to plug it into one of these mall things, and I and I can't figure it out. So, sorry. Right. Just, just let us know if we have to call the tow truck. Yeah, really. So, you know. When, you know, when gasoline got up to five dollars a gallon, I decided to go to electric. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, we always love having you on our show to talk baseball. But what we figured as Buck Walter gets the Met job, who better to speak to about him? As you played for Buck on the 1986 Oneonta Yankees, the 1987 Fort Lauderdale Yankees, the 1989 Albany Colony Yankees, the 92, 93, 94, 95 Yankees. So take us back to a 22-year-old Jim Laritz as a member of the Oneonta Yankees. When you recall your first interaction with your then manager, Buck Showalter. Well, it actually happened in spring training of 1986 when I reported to camp. Bill Livesey, who had signed me, put on my uh, my card, my, my draft card or signing card that guy can hit, you find a position. <laughs> and I showed up to spring training and... I, Buck Showalter at the time was running the minor league development and I showed up and Buck comes up to me and says, Hey, he says, uh, there's not a position on here. What, what position do you want to play? I said, well, yeah, I'd love to go back to catching. I think that's why they signed me because I was like, yeah, I'm a catcher. And uh, sure enough, you know, he put down catcher and that was my first meeting with him. And then about two weeks later, I was hitting in the batting cage and Roy White was the minor league uh, hitting instructor. And I was switch hitting, which I'd always done in the cages. I just never did it in the game. And Roy White convinced me after a session with him to try switch hitting because there was no switch hitting catchers in the Yankee organization at that time. Needless to say, Buck, who was coaching, going to be coaching Oneonta, he was the extended spring training coach for all the guys that didn't get put up on the on the in the A ball team to go to this extended spring training in Sarasota. So I spent another six weeks with Buck in, in Sarasota working on my switch hitting. And then I got called up to Fort Lauderdale Yankees for the for uh, Bucky Dent. And 
all of a sudden I started seeing pitches that I couldn't recognize because I had never hit in a game left-handed and I was getting frustrated and I walked into Bucky Dent's office and I said, Bucky, I'm not switching anymore. I want to go back to hitting right-handed. And he gave me the ultimatum. He said, if you don't switch hit, I'm sending you out of here. And I said, fine, get rid of me. And the next day I got sent out and I showed up in Oneonta and who was my first manager? It was Buck Showalter. So Showed up in Oneonta and ended up hitting 360 right-handed for the rest of the season and pretty much decided that I'm just going to be a right-handed hitter the rest of my career. Uh, and then, of course, him and I went together in 1987 to Fort Lauderdale. Uh, 1988, I, he stayed in Lauderdale. I went to Albany. Uh, and then 1989, we got rejoined again in, in Albany. And then, of course, uh, when I got called up in 1990, he was part of the coaching staff of the big league club and uh, played with him ever since. It's interesting because you mentioned going to Fort Lauderdale. So Buck's your manager there. You look at some of the players on that team. It's you, Kevin Moss, Hensley Mullins, Andy Stankiewicz, and an 18-year-old Bernie Williams. All of you make it to the majors. How important was Buck into setting the foundation for you and all those players for what would be, you know, pretty good major league careers for all of you. Well, I think I think the first thing that Buck did did so well that which I I know one hundred percent the game is missing today, is at those lower levels. He taught us how important and what it was like, how special it was to be a New York Yankee. You know, we had the rules back then where you had to show an inch of your socks, you know, your your stirrups. You had to be you, know, you you had to be clean cut, clean shaven. Uh, all of these things, Buck would always tell us, you know, this this is what, why the New York Yankees are different than any other organization you'll be a part of. They're first class, and they do they live by the rules, and uh, he really really emphasized that. So when we got to New York, we really knew that hey, listen, this is a special place to be, and we need to do whatever we can to stay there. And you know, Buck was a big part of that. And I just I remember. You know, getting getting caught up in '90, uh, sitting on the bench my first day in the big leagues in Baltimore, and you know Buck was 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 one of the coaches, and uh, he came up to me and he goes, Jimmy, I know that you didn't think you're going to get a chance to play today because you should, you know, you guys got here late, but Stump loves to put guys in on their first day, and be ready, you know, to pinch hit. And sure enough, I came up that night, I pinch hit, and I got my first base hit, my first at bat. And uh, like I said, the rest is history. And then, you know, he takes over the team in 92. And, uh, you know, we played together in 92, 93, 94, 95. And, uh, you know, we, we had our differences. You know, him and I butted heads a few times about my playing time. And one of the things he always used to tell me that, gosh, I wish I would have had that knowledge. You know, I wish I would have listened to him back then is about seeing the forest through the trees. And, you know, I was, you know, he always used to tell me, you're my Mariano Rivera with a bat. You know, he goes, there's not too many young kids like you that can come in late innings off the bench. And I know nine times out of 10, you're going to, you know, you're going to come through for me. And, uh, you know, it, it was, we had a pretty good relationship. Again, uh, heated at moments, but there was nobody that I remarked that I respected more knowing the game of baseball. This guy was two or three steps ahead of every other manager that he ever managed against. And it was fun for me because a lot of times when I got to the big leagues, I'd be sitting next to him because I wouldn't be in the lineup, but I'd be sitting next to him. And he would just be telling me, okay, watch, I'm going to do this. And he's going to do this. 
And sure enough, he'd make the move, and the other manager would make the same move. And he goes, see, now he's playing in my field because that's what I wanted him to do. He was just amazing at that. And, uh, you know, it was a guy that showed up every day at the ballpark before anybody else was there and was probably usually the last one to leave every night. And, you know, it was just uh, one of the one of the few managers I played for that I can honestly say that nobody was as good as him as being prepared for for the other team or the other the other manager for the moves that he would make. So, Jim, this is AJ. I'm, I'm glad you brought up a little bit of your differences with books. I did some reading on things. I found a, a Joel Sherman uh, writing a couple of years ago in a book. He said that Buck thought you were too brash and too unYankee like when you were a minor leaguer. So how did he make that clear to you other than what you just talked about? Did he pull you aside and say, you know, hey, you know, kid, if you want to make the majors, you have to do this. And how did you react to it then and think about it now? Yeah, no, he, he was he was on my, you know, him and I, the minor leagues, actually, we got along, I thought, more better than, than we did at the big league level, uh, only because I was playing every day in the minor leagues. Um, you know, but, what, but for, for Buck... I just think the biggest thing for him and I was just uh, when I, when I first got called up, you know, you're a young kid, you want to play and you want to earn money. And the only way to earn money is to keep playing. And when I started falling back into this late inning pinch hit guy, uh, you know, position changes and things like that, I wasn't, I wasn't ready to, to accept that. And, you know, I again had not proven myself at the big league level yet. Um, and, and that was, that's a big part of it. And, and I think what you see from 93 to 95 was, you know, Larry, this is brass Yankee. You know, he's, you know, he, who, here's a kid who's, who hasn't proved anything. And my point to them in the early, you know, 91, 92, 93 was, Hey, you're not giving me a chance. Give me a chance and I'll put up 31 homers and hundred RBIs every season. If I get 500, 600 at bats, well, 93 and 94, I got a total of 500 at bats. And if you added up the numbers, all of a sudden it was Leyritz backs up his bravado. And it, I, it was no longer this brass young Yankee because you know what? I went out and I proved that I could do it. And I think that was it. And I think unfortunately Buck and I didn't stay together long enough for me to really, to, you know, to, to, to blossom under his, his tutelage. And I honestly think in 95 going into 96, um, you know, I, I don't know what would have happened if he wasn't fired um, as far as our relationship goes. I don't know what would have happened. But, um, you know, years later, when, once he took over Baltimore and, you know, I was doing TV and radio and things like that, him and I, our relationship got much better. And I always tell everybody, everybody always asks me when you talk about managers, they all want to know who the who your favorite was, who was the best to play for, who was your smartest manager. And I always say the same thing. Buck, Buck was the smartest manager I ever played for. He, like, again, I go back to the saying, he was four or five steps ahead of everybody else. He was one of the most prepared. And the things that I learned by sitting on the bench next to him, you know, I still take to this day as things that, that, that helped me in my career. So, so that begs the question. So you say that Buck knows the game inside and out. He's two steps ahead of everybody. He knows what the other manager is going to do. This is an age where you know baseball spends a lot of money on analytics department, and they kind of script things out and says that if this pinch hitter comes up, you're going to use this you know pitcher to face him. How much do you think Buck will you know go 
with his gut as opposed to going by the script that the analytics department gives him? And do you think when you say that he was the most prepared manager you ever met, do you think he will embrace all the data that they give him to be even more prepared? Oh, I definitely think so. I think, you know, like I said, he was he was already analytical himself before the word analytical was invented, you know, um, you know in, in the game. Uh, and that's what I meant. He, he, the things that he studied, the, the, the amount of time that he prepared every game and every night, um, he was kind of already doing that himself. But he also had a pretty good way of being able to know people, you know, to handle people like myself. Uh, you know, he, he had a way, a way to do that. And, and that's where I think it's, it's going to be even more important that, yeah, I think he'll, he'll use the analytics. I'm, you know, I'm sure he'll eat that up. But at the same time, he also is going to go with some of his gut, uh, I think, more than most managers. Because you're, you're starting to see the game shift now. You're starting to see teams like, you know, Atlanta, teams like, you know, Dusty Baker, uh, that you know, Tony La Russa. Uh, these guys going a little bit against the analytical minds uh, and being successful with it and realizing that I think the analytical side of people are of these teams are starting to think, well, you know what, maybe there is a little bit that we can use the old school with the new school and it's beneficial for both of us. And I think you're going to, you're going to start seeing that shift in the next five years in the game. You know, one of the things you look for in managers is they learn from previous jobs. And you talk about him and mixing analytics uh, with his gut, with his baseball knowledge. One of the things you said a couple of years ago is you felt that he had mellowed over the years, that there's a growing period in terms of learning how to deal with 25 different personalities at the big league level. What did you notice? How did he change that and how he dealt with individual players as well as we talked, just talked statistics? Well, yeah, yeah, you know, I was interested because I hadn't been around him uh, very much. And then it was when Jim Tomey was playing for Baltimore. And I, I, you know, Jimmy and I were pretty close. And I talked to him one day and he explained to me that just how much Buck had learned, how finally not only to know the, the baseball side of the game, but now to be able to deal with the different personalities and how he improved that so much from everything that Jim Tomey had heard about him. When he got to Baltimore, he's like, I, I don't see any of that, any of the old things that people talked about because, you know, Buck, Buck did learn how to be more personal, more of a personality. And I think, I think, uh, honestly, I think being on TV, I think him doing the broadcasting for a while, I think that actually helped him a lot more. Uh, it, it made him more personable. And uh, like I said, the last two or three years that I was around him uh, on the field, with, you know, I brought my kids to the games here in Anaheim and, uh, you know, talked to Buck on the field and being more around him and watching him, with his players, one thing that he always did so great uh, is during batting practice, he would walk around and get the feeling of each kid, each person. He talked to just about everybody that was in the starting lineup. He would talk to the next day and the day that day's pitcher. Uh, you know, he he did a really really good job of trying to get a gauge on how people were feeling that day. Hey, did you get in a fight with your wife before you came here today? Was your, did you get any sleep last night? Cause you got a newborn. Those were all great things that he was beginning to learn. And I think by the time, you know, he got to Baltimore, I think he finally had all that down. And that's why he became such a good manager. 
That's also interesting. You take a look at, at the teams that you were on that Buck managed. They were a combined 549 wins, 387 losses, and that's pretty impressive over seven different seasons. Um, you know, I'm just wondering when you take a look at the body of Buck's career. Obviously, you know, every manager wants to have that you know World Series championship on his resume. How much do you think the burning desire to win will fuel you know what Buck does here in New York? Well, you know, I kind of compare it a little bit to when Joe Torre took over the Yankees. You know, Buck's Buck's taken over a pretty pretty good team. That's you know the core of the team's pretty good, and a pretty decent you know, you know hopefully pitching staff and, and things like that. But he's coming in at a time he's familiar with New York. He knows all the BS that goes on outside of the game, you know, and he's coming into a, a situation with a new owner that is a lot like his owner back in with the Yankee days, Mr. Steinbrenner, who's willing to spend the money, who's willing to, to go out there and get what they need. And I think he's coming into a great situation. And I think that's part of why maybe it was so attractive to him. It's like, hey, I want to win something. I want to prove that I, that I am a World Series champion manager caliber. And this is a great opportunity with these New York Mets to, to be able to do that. And, you know, we're, we're better, like Joe Torre coming back to the Yankees, we're better for Buck to come back to, 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 you know, to New York. And, uh, you know, I think, I think, you know, for a guy um, that was, you know, so, was so many years under, under Steinbrenner and in the New York Yankee organization, I think coming back to New York is maybe an opportunity for him, he thinks, to finally get that little ring that he's been waiting to get. You know, you've had coaching experience in the game, and you have a good relationship with Buck. Any chance that you're going to give him a call and say, listen, uh, I'd like to interview for a coaching position? That text message has already been sent. <laughs> <laughs> and, and was there a response? Uh, he, he, was, he's, he's, he said, hey, thank you. What I did, basically, I just called him up and said, hey, I texted him and said, congratulations. You know, great for you to be back in New York. Good luck with everything. If you need any help, I'm always available. All my kids are growing up now. They're all raised, and I'm ready to, to maybe, to maybe you know, get back into it. And he said, I'll keep you in mind. So, does he have any, you think, particular requirements for his coaching staff? You know, does he want uh, people who be yes-men or people who argue with him? Well, I, like I said, it was just a text. I do not know. I think that's what he's going through right now is starting to feel it out, going, okay, how much leeway are they going to give me? Are they going to give me an opportunity to, to get, you know, five new coaches in, the, in a bench coach? Or is it going to be just my bench coach that I'm going to be allowed to, to get? You know, I think that's what they're going through right now is the learning process of what the organization is going to give him and the leeway that he has to bring in some people that he may want to bring up that he's had relationships with in the past. And uh, I'm sure that's what him and Sandy and all them are talking about now. So let's say Buck gets you on a short list and, and you meet with Billy Epler and, and Steve Cohn. What would you say your biggest selling point to be a coach on Buck Showalter staff would be? I'm sorry, you cut out for one second. What was the last? If you got an interview that Buck got you on a short list, you came in to interview, Buck was there, Billy Epler, the GM, and Sandy was there, and Steve Cohn, the owner, was there. What would be your selling point to the Mets why you should be on Buck Showalter's staff? Well, I just think the amount of success that I had, you know, as a catcher, you're used to dealing with personalities. They always say catchers make the best managers because, you know, they're, they're basically the field manager on the field. And, you know, the, the success that I have had with young players, with, 
you know, get, getting the most out of people. Um, I, I think that, you know, there's there's so much you can teach. These kids are, are so talented at the big league level. It's the mental side of things that you really have to get the most out of. And I, that's what I did in my whole career as a catcher. You know, Andy Pettit's personal catcher. You know, I tell people all the time, I caught Andy at least 50 starts or more. I don't know the exact number, but I said, you know, you think all those 50 starts, he was he was at the top of his game. But guess what? Every time he went out there, I had to make him think. He, he could get through seven innings every night. And that's your job. And to deal with the personalities, to deal with, you know, every reliever that comes in, you're, even though you may have not, you know, coached a lot, you pretty much coached your entire career when you were catching. And I think, like I said, that's that's where I think uh, I would have the ability to 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 talk to guys, to bring out the most, and, and to get them charged up every single day because it's a grind. And, you know, you have to know myself, you know, had to know showing up at the ballpark, I may not have been in the lineup, but there was going to be a point at some time that I could get used. And I think that's an important thing to teach some of these young kids that I wasn't taught because I played in the American League. Being in the National League, when I finally got traded to the Padres, Mark, it was the first time that somebody explained to me, hey, Jimmy, you may not be in the starting lineup, but you got a chance to play every single day because of double switches, because you can play five different positions. I think that's an important thing that on um, being on a staff like the Mets, that you that you need to get to all these players, all 25 of them, that every one of them is going to be relied on at some point. And if you're not in that lineup today, you, you know, you, you could be in there at some point tonight. You need to be ready. And I think that's maybe something that has not been taught to a lot of these these kids. You know, Mark wanted to segue now into talking about what's going on with baseball and the lockdown thing. And you gave us a good chance to do this. We mentioned one of the things you're talking about is the universal designated hitter. You played in both leagues. How do you feel about the universal designated hitter and getting rid of the pitcher as a hitter? I think it's got to go one way or the other. I think it's got to be completely taken out in both leagues or it's got to be taken or it's both leagues need to have it. I think that's important um, just for the uniformity, especially nowadays when we have as much interleague play that we have, you know, the, the, and, and, and when these American league teams go to play national league teams, it really isn't fair. If these guys aren't hitting all year, that all of a sudden they get to the playoffs in the world series and these guys all got to start hitting again. I, I just don't think that's fair. Um, and I think it's just going to be uniformed, whatever way they decide to go. Um, you know, it, it, it's the amount of money that they're paying pitchers today. Uh, it might be a good idea to keep those guys off the base pass and off the, off, out of the dish because uh, you're, you're investing a lot of money in these guys. Another rule change, which I think you are the perfect person to speak on, is AJ and I saw it, you know, all year in the Atlantic League with the robo umps. So. Baseball has this new analytic, which drives the defensive metrics for, for catchers, which is a, a huge thing. You know, how many strikes in their framing, you know, how many strikes they get in a game by their framing. Now, if you take that out, because it's by an automatic umpire, it's where the ball crosses the plate, has nothing to do with the catcher frames it. Because of analytics, the stolen base is now kind of, you know, taken out of the game. Will the position of catcher transition now more to an offensive, you know, position and, and will it cost some of these defensive catchers money in the you know because of this CBA if they adopt some of these rule changes? Yeah, it's going to be interesting. You know, I, I think that's you know that that's a part of the game that you cannot lose is, is catchers, uh, de defensive catchers. You know, 
it, it's it's kind of like all of a sudden now second base with nobody nobody being able to take out the runner. I mean the the the, the infielder. You know now you're talking about guys that are six five that you think could go play second base because they don't have to be as agile as it move as much. Um, I think catching is the same type of situation. I don't think you can ever go with a completely offensive catcher. You know, even though everybody considers Mike Piazza an offensive catcher, Mike Piazza knew how to call a game. He knew he knew the gist of calling a game. The only weakness Mike Piazza ever had in his game was throwing runners out at second base. But he did a great job of blocking the ball. He did a great job of calling a game. Those are the things that you 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 still need from a catcher. Uh, and and I, I I don't think the catching position is ever going to go strictly all offense like a position player might. Uh, last one of the night. Uh, AJ and I make Jim Larritt's commissioner of baseball. What's the first rule change you're making and why? Uh, no more shifts. Really? Nice. Yep, I got to have two guys We're on with one you. side of second base and two guys on the other side of second base. You can, Other than that, you can move your outfielder wherever the heck you want. But as far as the infield goes, I, I want a first baseman, a second baseman on their side, and I want a shortstop and a first baseman, or third baseman on their side. And again, you can move them wherever you want, but I just think that uh, because we're not, because of the way they've started teaching, hitting, I think that that rule change will get these guys back to being good hitters and not just swing for the fences every single time. Yeah, if they had made that rule change back four or five years ago, Curtis Grandison's average probably would have been about 50 points higher because once they shifted on him, it was it, it was awful. I mean, they, he kept on hitting exactly where he was played. It was, uh, you know, and I guess they put three guys on that side of the field. But, Jimmy, we appreciate it, and hopefully, you know, I get to see you out at City Field as part of the Mets coaching staff. Well, here's what I'm going to tell you. You're going to see me out at City Field pretty much a, a lot anyhow just because – uh, Steve Napolitano and I are really, really good friends. And, you know, Nap is a huge, he's got the suite there that, that I, that I make, make a bunch of appearances at. So you'll see me there quite a bit anyhow, between there and Yankee stadium. Uh, well, now I don't have to sit in the press box. I can go to Steve's suite. <laughs> there you go. Him in the mooch. <laughs> so yeah, I'll bounce around from suite to suite. Jim, thanks so much for your time today. We always love talking baseball with you. Hi, Mark and AJ. I appreciate it guys. Have a good night. You got it. Uh, Jim Lairitz, the King, uh, two-time world champ.